O gracious God and Father, sanctify us now in your truth. Your word is truth. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your beautiful word. And what we know not, please teach us. And what we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us all for the glory and praise of your dearly beloved son who lives with you and who reigns with you together with the Holy Spirit. One God forever blessed and forever praised. Amen. Amen. Do do you still find grace, God's grace, to be amazing? Do you still find God's grace to be amazing? God's grace is his unmerited, free favor that he lavishes on guilty sinners like you and me. It's the love of God that he shows to the unlovely. It's the mercy of God that he shows to the wicked. It's the peace of God that he offers to rebels. God's grace, his spectacular kindness is free and it is full and it is forever. And it is not in accordance or on the basis of anything we do. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Disciples of Jesus are saved by grace from beginning to end. Sometimes we sing amazing grace. The great John Newton. You knew I couldn't preach another sermon without having a Newton reference, right? Tis grace has brought me safe thus far and my good works will lead me home. Is that the song? No. Grace. Grace from beginning to end. Grace will lead us home. And so this morning, as I preach the final sermon as the pastor of Franconia Baptist Church, my prayer and my desire is to point you to grace. I want to point you to the God of all grace. I want to point you to his heavenly heart of grace revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. I want to point you to the word of his grace, which is able to sanctify you and build you up. And perhaps there's no passage in the whole Bible that presents us the heart of God's grace more clearly than in Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 15, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this on page 874, 874. And um, I'm going to read the whole chapter. I figure it last sermon, just just keep you here till two. Okay, so let's look at verse one of chapter 15. I'll just give you the structure really quick. In verses three to seven, you have like this threefold parable. You have the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin and the so-called parable of the prodigal son. And those three parables are told by Jesus in response to what happens in verses one and two. So pay attention as we read this. Notice what happens in verses one and two that prompts Jesus to tell these threefold parables about the joy of God in lavishing grace on sinners. This is what Holy Scripture says. 
Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when it comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there will be joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he said he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. 
His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. My prayer, brothers and sisters, is that each one of us here this morning would once again, or maybe for the first time, be amazed by God's saving grace in Christ. That we would be strengthened by the grace that's in Jesus. We pick up the story in chapter 15. And Jesus, as we have seen in our studies of Luke's gospel, is still on his way to Jerusalem. Tensions are sky high between Jesus and the religious leadership of Israel. The Pharisees and the scribes, we know from chapter 11, verse 54, they've been following Jesus, listening to Jesus, lying in wait for Jesus, hoping to catch him in something he might say. But in our passage, the religious leaders object to not Merely what Jesus says, mainly, though, what Jesus is doing. They're not upset mainly at his words, but at his actions. Notice in verses one and two, Jesus associates. He receives. He welcomes sinners. And that brings us to our first heading. We have several headings this morning. The first heading is number one. A shameless reception, a shameless reception. Verses one and two. Look again. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This is a shameless reception by Jesus. The, the sinners and tax collectors, that, that's a, just a catch-all phrase to refer to the, the worst of the worst in the minds of the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of Israel. And instead of rebuking these sinners, instead of shaming them and sending them away as unclean, Jesus welcomes them. He receives them. He actually eats with them. Now, why are these sinners coming to Jesus? Look again at verse one. They're drawing near to hear him. You see that? Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. He's proclaiming the good news of the forgiveness of sins through turning from your sins and trusting in him. He's announcing the arrival of God's kingdom through the king. And these sinners are drawing near to hear about this forgiveness. And this was scandalous. You remember the Pharisees, that they did everything they could to avoid 
contact with sinners, especially tax collectors. Now, if you're with the IRS, you might want to leave for a minute. No. (laughs) Apparently, tax collectors have never been popular. Even in the first century, the tax collectors among the Jews, they were hated for three reasons. Briefly, they were wretched traitors. They were working for the occupying pagan Roman Empire. They were notoriously dishonest thieves. Remember in chapter 19, Zacchaeus, he has to give back money that he had defrauded. That's what they did. They would defraud people. And third, they were ceremonially unclean. Tax collectors were always around Gentiles, which made them unclean in the eyes of the Pharisees. But the Pharisees were known to separate themselves. That's what what the word Pharisee means. They were the separate ones. They understood the way you avoid sin is by avoiding sinners. You never want to come in contact with someone who is defiled or unclean. And so they avoided sinners. They would never eat with a sinner, some notorious sinful person. And they would never eat with a tax collector. They would avoid all contact. And notice when they see Jesus doing this, what do they do? They begin to, ESV says, murmur. Your Bible may say grumble. Your Bible may say complain. In the Septuagint, this is the word that's used in the book of Exodus and Numbers to describe what Israel did in their wilderness wanderings. Israel murmured against the Lord. They complained. They grumbled. And so these Pharisees and scribes, they're following in the rebellious ways of their faithless forefathers. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they looked down on others with contempt. And they see the friend of sinners welcoming sinners. And instead of celebrating this, instead of praising the Lord for this, they grumble. They grumble. This man receives and welcomes sinners and he even eats with them. And so it's that context that leads Jesus to offer these, this threefold set of parables in response to this grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes. And each one of these parables highlights the sensational joy of God's grace. So the first thing I want you to see in verses three to 10, we'll go quickly through these opening parables, and we'll spend most of our time in the third parable. Verses three to 10, I want you to notice a sensational rejoicing, a sensational rejoicing. In verses three to 10, Jesus tells this series of parables. He begins with these two parables that highlight the sensational joy of heaven. You see it right there in verse three. So he told them this parable. So he tells two parables. First, he begins with the parable of the lost sheep. You see it right there in the passage. What happens? A shepherd has 100 sheep, 99 stay put. One sheep goes off, wanders away. And so he goes out into the open pasture to seek it and to find it and to bring this one lost sheep back. And when he finds the sheep, he rejoices He puts it over his shoulders and he comes back and he arrives home. He tells everybody, hey, I found the lost sheep. Friends and neighbors, they rejoice with him. And he says in verse seven, Jesus makes application. So don't don't look at me, look at your Bible. Verse seven, 
Just so, he's going to make a comparison. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now that last phrase sometimes trips people up. Jesus is not saying that there are people in this world that don't need to repent of any sin. He's not saying that there are people, there's a category of people that there's sinners over here and other people over here, they they don't have to repent of anything because they're sinless. That's not what Jesus is saying. There are some listening to his parables that think they don't need to repent. They think they're righteous. Remember what Jesus said earlier? He says, those who are well have no need of a what? Physician. But those who are sick, right? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Listen, you can't repent of sin if you don't think you're a sinner. And these Pharisees and scribes, they're looking down on the sinners. They don't think of themselves as needing repentance. And what Jesus is saying is that God rejoices when one sin-sick sinner repents. Heaven above is not waiting for nine sinners or 99 sinners or 999 sinners before throwing a joyful party. When one sinner repents, heaven rejoices. And then Jesus tells a similar parable, the parable of the lost coin. A woman has 10 silver coins. These were called drachmas. One drachma was like one day's wage. So it was not like a penny she loses. It's significant. And what does she do? She, she searches. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She searches carefully and diligently until she finds her lost coin. And when she finds it, what does she do? She rejoices. She tells her friends and neighbors and they rejoice. And Jesus makes the same comparison. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So just ask yourself, why is Jesus telling these parables? Put it, put yourself in the scene. He's looking at the Pharisees and scribes. And he's saying, when one sinner repents, God and all of his angels are rejoicing. And yet you're grumbling. How could you possibly delight in the recovery of a rescued animal and a found coin and not celebrate with sensational joy at the recovery of an eternal soul? That's what Jesus is saying. One single saved soul will outlive every kingdom of this world. And to to help us understand this joy even more fully, he goes to this third parable. Jesus turns in verse 11 and he tells the most famous story he ever told. The so-called parable of the what? The prodigal son. But it's actually not a story about one son. You know this. You can see that right there. Look at verse 11. And there was a man who had what? Two sons. This is a story. This is a parable of two lost sons and a loving father. 
That doesn't have the same ring to it as parable of the prodigal son. But even in your Bibles, you can write that. The parable of two lost sons and the loving father. And really, the father is the centerpiece of the parable. This story begins, number three, if you're taking notes, with a shocking rebellion. A shocking rebellion. Verses 11 to 16. Verse 11, and Jesus said there was a man who had two sons and the younger, the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now we are so familiar with this passage. I remember teaching our kids this passage when we lived in Raleigh, right before bedtime, when I was trying to get the boys to go to sleep in their bunk beds, I would get out Luke 15 and we would start reading it and And listen, if you want your kids to memorize scripture, just read it to them every night for like six months. And then they start making games out of it and laughing and and you lose all their attention. But anyway, you you remember this, boys. We we, we memorize Luke 15 and we're so familiar with it. the, The request from the younger son probably no longer shocks us as it should. He's not asking his dad for an advance. He's not asking his father for a loan. He's asking his father to give him the share of the inheritance that he can turn into capital that he would only inherit, as it were, once his father is dead. According to the law of Moses, he's entitled to one third of the estate. But don't get this. Don't misunderstand. He's not asking for property. He's basically asking for the property that he can turn and sell it, which would only happen when the father is actually dead. So in other words, he's saying, dad, let's just pretend that you're dead. Give me what's coming to me. Let's just act like you're already dead. That's what the son is saying. He wants full control of his portion of the inheritance and he wants it now. I mean, this is an unthinkable request. It's a form of rebellious mutiny. Dad, let's just go ahead and act like you're dead so I can get what's coming to me and let's do it now. Now, at this point, the Pharisees are probably listening and wondering, oh, wow, the father is going to discipline him, maybe even corporal punishment for this younger son. What a rebellious request. And here comes the shock. And he divided his property between them. What? The Pharisees gasp in horror, right? But no sooner than this young man has his share of the property, what does he do with it? He liquidates it. That means he sells it. He turns it into capital, into cash. He probably doesn't get a lot for it because he he only does it in a few days, right? So he just gets whatever cash he can get for it because he wants his freedom. He wants his freedom to sin. And so he leaves town after a few days with his money, with his stuff, and he heads into a far country. We're supposed to understand this is a Gentile country. And because Jesus is Jewish, he's talking to Jews. We can assume safely that this is a a Jewish boy. And now this is where the prodigal son gets his name. Prodigal just means wasteful. We don't use that word anymore, but it means wasteful. And so this boy goes into the far country and notice he squandered. He wasted his property. He scattered it to the wind. It's like he had the money, he just threw it in the wind. 
He, he wasted it with reckless, foolish, wild living. The King James says with riotous living. He was having a riot of a time and he lost everything. Proverbs 29.3 says, He who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. So basically, he's turned his inheritance into cash, but the party doesn't last long. Verse 14, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. Gets worse. I mean, this just gets worse and worse. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, a Gentile likely, who sent him into his fields to do what? Feed pigs. Now, most Jewish boys don't want that on their resume. Feeding pigs? Verse 16. It gets worse. Which is, this is embarrassing. Worse and worse. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. This young man has committed a shocking rebellion against his father. He's brought shame to his family. He's abandoned his responsibilities. He's blown his entire inheritance. He's now penniless, homeless, and friendless. And he's shameless. He's hired himself out as a day laborer, the lowest job in their society, to a Gentile pig farmer. And he's in the fields with the pigs, and he's almost become a swine himself. He's longing to eat the pigs' food. I mean, he's become untouchable. He's become human swine. This is... This is a disgrace. This younger son has become an utterly contemptible, filthy, unclean, shameful, dishonorable, disobedient disgrace. This is a shocking rebellion. My sisters, this is a, again, a perfect portrait of what the Bible calls sin. At its core, Sin is rebellion against our God and Father. Sin is a wholehearted pursuit of our own desires, regardless of what God, our maker, commands us to be and to do. This shocking rebellion leads to number four. Number four, a scandalous reception. A scandalous reception. Look at verses 17 to 24. I remember reading one time Robert Frost said that home, home is where when you have to go there, they have to what? Take you in. Well, this young man, he, he starts to hit rock bottom and he comes to his senses. He starts thinking about the goodness of his father. He starts thinking about that his, his father has servants and they're not starving to death. He, he, he's a generous father. He, he gives his servants even lots of bread. Verse 17, when he came to himself, he came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I'm perishing here from hunger. This is what I'm going to do. I've I got a plan. I will go to my father and I'll say to him, here's the speech. He's preparing the, the speech. 
Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer willing to be called your son. Treat me as one of your what? Hired servants. This son is not thinking he'd be welcomed back in the family. His father doesn't have to take him in. He's envisioning returning home, not as a son, but as a servant, as a slave, as a hired servant. He's lost his rights as a son. He's going back and he's going to work tirelessly as a servant, as a day laborer for his dad in the hopes that he'll be able to pay back what he's lost. And he's got his speech ready. And so what happens? What happens? Verse 20, he arose. He arose and came to his father. Now picture it. He's thinking the best hope he could have is that he can find reconciliation by restitution. Pay back everything I've lost and then maybe I can somehow take away the shame. Verse 20, he arose and came to his father. Now, again, remember at this point, who's listening to this? Pharisees and scribes. Remember what we read earlier in Deuteronomy 21? They know the law. What what does God's law say to do to a rebellious, glutton, disobedient son? Take him outside the gates and stone him. That's a, a capital offense to do what this son did to his father. So what comes next is just an, a scandalous reception. Verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now at this point, the Pharisees probably asked for oxygen. Everything in this verse is scandalous. The father saw him. What does that imply? The father was what? Looking for him. The father is at the edge of the village looking at the horizon for that silhouette of his son. He's looking for him. And when the father saw him, he feels compassion. He feels mercy. His heart goes out to his son. And what does this mercy motivate the father to do? Scandalous. He runs. Have you ever tried to run in a robe? Middle Eastern men who are noblemen don't run. I heard John MacArthur say one time, they either shimmy or they moonwalk. Right? You don't run in robes. If you run in robes, you have to lift your robe up and you show your legs and that's disgraceful. But this, this father doesn't care. He runs. Why is he running? I think the point is the father wants to get to his son before anyone else does. He doesn't want any of the villagers or any of the other folks in the estate to throw any shame on the son. The father runs out there to be there first. To bear any shame. 
He runs out and he covers his shameful son with his love. We're told he hugs him. He he embraces him. Pig smell and all. And he kisses him. He keeps on kissing him. And the son is probably shocked. He prepares his repentance speech. Remember? He's got his offer to pay back as a hired servant what he lost. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, which is true. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, which is true. And before he can get to treat me as one of your hired servants, the father cuts him off. Before he can even finish, the father interrupts and says, servants, bring the quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes or sandals on his feet. This is just over the top. This is scandalous. At this point, the Pharisees and scribes are probably booing, right? Instead of shaming his son, the father bears the shame himself. Instead of putting his son on probation, he showers his son with grace. If you want one word to describe what the father does in this passage, it's this grace. Amazing grace. He shows kindness that is undeserved. He doesn't simply tolerate his son. He receives him. He welcomes him. Even the worst of sinners, not as a hired servant. He treats him like a royal son. He puts the royal robe on him. He puts the ring of authority on his hand. And he puts sandals on his feet. Servants don't wear sandals. Only people in the family wear sandals. And instead of gathering rocks to stone this rebellious son, they send for the charcoal for a barbecue. (laughs) It's time for brisket. It's not in the text. Verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate And here's the reason why. Why why all this celebration? For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It would have been, listen, it would have been more realistic for the father to kill his son than for him to kill the fattened calf for his son. But instead of a funeral, there's a welcome home party. The son was lost due to his selfish sin and rebellion. But this son was found by his father's love, mercy and grace. And they began to celebrate. And of course, from the first two parables, we know heaven is also celebrating. Now, at this point in the story, we're about done. The question everyone in the audience should have been asking and would have been asking is this. Where is the what? Where's the older son? What's he doing? The eldest son was the one responsible for things like feasts and celebrations. Where is he? Well, he's not even at the party. That brings us, number five, to a shameful reaction. Verses 25 to 32. 
a shameful reaction. This is the last point. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. Brothers and sisters, we finally meet the older son, but please don't misunderstand. You've actually already met the older son. He's a Pharisee. Do you realize what's he doing? Think about it. He's angry and this leads to grumbling instead of celebrating the repentance of sinners. He grumbles and complains. He's a Pharisee. Verse 28, his father came out and entreated him. Think about this. The father comes out, leaves the party. The the party isn't for the son. The party is for the father. They're celebrating the father for his love and grace that he lavished on his younger son. And the father leaves the party and comes out and begs the older son to come in. And listen to what the older son, listen to how the older son addresses his dad. Look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command. You hear that? And yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now, imagine addressing your dad like that. I don't think I've ever told my dad, look, <laughs> maybe look out, right? <laughs> doesn't, even, doesn't, even, doesn't even dignify him with calling him father. You see, the older son stayed home. And he was just as lost as the younger son who ran away. He has no relationship with his father. He doesn't even know that the younger son's come home. That's how distant he is. The older son was physically closer, but his heart was far away. He looks at his dad, not as a father, but as a stingy slave master. I love the way the NIV puts it. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. He sees his father like a boss he has to put in time with. I got to do all this stuff. And notice he says, you didn't even let me celebrate with my friends. He doesn't want to celebrate with his dad. He doesn't want to celebrate with the family. He wants to celebrate with his friends. He, he, he cares nothing about his father. It's a disgrace. Friends, this, in, in this passage, in this section on the older son, Sinclair Ferguson helpfully unpacks it like this. Quote, what Jesus unmasks here is a legalistic heart. A heart that sees the Lord as a slave master and not as a gracious father. He doesn't think he needs any repentance. Does that sound like anybody in the passage? I've never disobeyed one of your commands. Sounds like a Pharisee, doesn't it? Unrighteous, listen, kids, listen up. You can be lost and go to hell. 
Not because you grow up and you go and live like the younger son. You live an unrighteous life. You can also live a self-righteous life. And both of those paths lead to death. But instead of disciplining this older son for his insolence, instead of rebuking this shameful, disobedient, dishonorable eldest son, notice the heart of this kind, gracious father. Verse 31. And he said to him, son. It's my favorite word in the passage. He calls him son. He didn't dignify his dad with his title, but his father, this father looks at this disobedient eldest son and says, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting. It's appropriate to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Even here, this loving father lavishes his grace on an unworthy son. And he explains that when the dead are given life and the lost sinner is found, there's only one response, joy, joy. Now you take your Bibles and you look in your Bibles and what comes after verse 32 in your Bible? Verse 33, nope, (laughs) it's the end of the chapter. It's kind of a dramatic ending, isn't it? You're you're waiting for the, the answer to the question, well, what does the eldest son do? Will the elder son repent and come in and join the party? See, that's the very thing that Jesus is asking the Pharisees and scribes. Are you going to repent and to embrace the grace of God in Jesus Christ and come in and join the party, come in and join the feast. But sisters, there are many, many things to draw from this passage. I want to close with two. Number one, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this passage is in the Bible to summon you to receive God's amazing grace in Christ. If you want to know what God is like, he's like this. He's the God of all grace. He's the God who gives sinners grace. He gives sinners undeserved kindness. This passage is in the Bible to summon anyone to turn from their own unrighteousness or to turn from their own self-righteousness and to receive in empty hands the righteousness of Christ. To receive the righteous one himself, the Lord Jesus. This passage shows us That unrighteous law breaking and self-righteous law keeping both end in death. 
Our only hope is grace. Your only hope is grace. You can run away from God by breaking all of his rules, or you can stay close at home and try to keep all of his rules. But you can be close to the things of Jesus and never trust him. And this passage is teaching us that all of us like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus Christ himself, through the preaching of his gospel, is calling you to receive him in the empty hands of faith. Secondly and finally, this passage is a a call for us to rejoice in God's amazing grace in Christ. Rejoice in God's amazing grace in Christ. You can say amen or amen. Christian, I hope you see something astounding as we close. There's a parable here of a loving father and two lost sons. But there's actually a third son in Luke 15. He's the one telling the story. The son who's telling the story is the obedient The obedient son. And brothers and sisters, you remember when we read Deuteronomy 21 earlier? It describes God's punishment and his law for rebellious and sinful sons. It requires the death penalty. But what immediately follows that passage? What comes right after that passage in Deuteronomy 21? I hope you remember when we read it. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For cursed is the man who is hung on a tree. My sisters, the most amazing aspect of God's grace in Luke 15 is that the perfectly obedient son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was fully pleasing to his father in every way, took the place on the cross for rebellious sons and daughters like us. He went outside the city gates and he died in our place for our sins. He bore the death penalty that our sins deserve in his body on the tree. And you know what that's called? Grace. From beginning to end. It's grace. He died for our sins of unrighteousness and he died for our sins of self-righteousness. And by his grace, he has reconciled us to the father and we are sons and daughters of the king. And he's clothed us with his righteousness and he's lavished us with an inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. And we have been received and we are loved and we are cherished forever. What more could we ask for in a savior that is not found in the person of Jesus Christ?
serving as one of your shepherds has been one of the chief joys of my life. And this morning, I get the joy of pointing you away from me to the chief shepherd. I commend you to Christ. I cannot commend you to one more faithful. He will never leave you nor forsake you. I cannot commend you to one more gracious. His grace is like himself, boundless and bottomless. I cannot commend you to one more able. He can supply all of your needs. He can fill all your souls. He can build all of you up and he can give you an inheritance. He will give you an inheritance where we are heirs as kings and queens and we shall sit on thrones and we shall live with him forever and ever. And he's preparing a feast for us. A feast that will never end. And we will have palms of victory in our hands and crowns of glory on our heads. And we will have songs of triumph in our mouths. And we will be with Christ forever and we shall worship Christ forever in fullness of joy and pleasures forever. There'll be no more sin or sorrow or death for the former things will have passed away. And we shall reign with Christ forever. And if a pastor and his people meet there in that palace of glory and grace, they shall never, ever part again. And so now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly father, we thank you for your amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to trust him, to know him, to love him and to follow him until that time when we see him face to face. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.